the information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, you magical people out there, and thank you for tuning in for Harry Potter Therapy. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. Oh, I love it. Every time you say it, I love it. (laughs) Welcome to Chapter 3, Letters from No One. This chapter really emphasizes Harry's desire for connection with anyone or anything. I mean, poor little dude. He is no one, and he really has no one, and he doesn't really have an identity until he's actually told that he's a wizard. What can this say with regards to the loneliness that is felt while searching for an identity and the need to connect with oneself? You know, up until this point, it seems like Harry has never received a letter. Most of the kids in school are terrified to talk to him because of his cousin, and he doesn't really have any friends. Dudley even makes a remark that Harry's got a letter because it's so outstanding. And his Uncle Vernon actually comments, who would be writing to you? Dad, look! Harry's got a letter! Hey, give it back! It's mine! Yours? Who'll be writing to you? Until he and Aunt Petunia both realize that the letter is from Hogwarts. Harry would much rather be in his cupboard in a place that's really a storage room for spices and kitchen utensils and linens instead of a place for an 11-year-old boy to be living. He'd rather be there than to have a different kind of room and more accommodations but not have a letter. I think that throughout this chapter, as he's constantly trying to figure out a way to get the letter, we see how hard he is fighting to establish a sense of connection. Anybody who's ever been lonely can probably really relate to Harry in this chapter. He's been abused, he's been humiliated, he's been bullied, and this is the first time we see him really standing up to his relatives and taking risks, no matter what it takes, just for a chance to make a connection. Give me that letter! Get off! They're my letters! Let go I think that most of us can overcome just about anything so long as we have someone in our life. As devastating as child abuse and trauma and parental or other family losses can be, we can survive just about anything if we have a supportive person in our corner, and Harry has no one. 
Of course, he doesn't know that Mrs. Fig is secretly watching over him. He doesn't know that Dumbledore is secretly watching over him. He doesn't know about the amount of love that he actually has. He doesn't even know he's a wizard. He doesn't even know he's a wizard. So at this point, he's 10 and a half. And in the last 10 years, he's been picked on and prodded and bullied and abused and very utterly alone. In prisons, solitary confinement is the worst kind of punishment. And personally, I actually think it's cruel and unusual to have somebody be isolated. Harry is often isolated, locked in his cupboard, no different than solitary confinement, as he experiences after the incident at the zoo. And if we just think about it, he'd spent 10 years being alone. Around other people, sure, but perhaps feeling lonelier around the Dursleys than when he's completely by himself. Shamed for who he is, not understanding who he is, being rejected when he asks questions, being humiliated, being denied. So, of course, at the slightest sign of attention, of receiving some kind of a letter from a stranger, somebody that is persistent on trying to reach him, Harry is going to do everything possible to try to read that letter, to try to find out who's trying to write to him, to find some kind of a connection, because this is him clinging on to survival. And this is something that I think anybody his age or or any other age would also be fighting to do again this chapter highlights child abuse and bullying through the lens of the dursleys specifically dudley and his gang's violence towards harry jk Rowling even wrote that dudley's favorite sport is harry hunting i mean seriously what the merlin's beard man it was heartbreaking to read this and largely it's not only Dudley, but his parents that have created this behavior by raising Dudley to see Harry as someone who is different from them. The Dursleys are essentially creating this us versus them attitude. They're making it okay for Dudley and also his friends to humiliate and bully Harry and to treat him with injustice and prejudice. Essentially, what happens when we start seeing other people as different from us is that we stop seeing them as human. We see them as almost like vermin. According to some neuroscience studies, it seems that when we see other people as different from us, we lack the humanization factor. We lack empathy toward them. However, if we're able to find some kind of a connection, if we're able to see that just like me, this other person also enjoys something, for example, likes ice cream or likes the same kind of sports team as I do or likes the Avengers or likes Harry Potter, for example, we might be able to empathize with that person more. I think that Dudley and Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia all really lack that sense of empathy when it comes to Harry, whereas they're able to perhaps have it toward one another, at least to some degree. And smile. Vernon, <gasps> just look at him. I can't believe it. In just a week, he'll be off to smeltings. Caveat to smeltonia. Proudest moment of my life. Well, I have to wear that too. What? You go to smeltings. <laughs> Don't be so stupid. You're going to go to the state school where you belong. And this is what you're going to be wearing when I've finished dyeing it. 
But that's Dudley's old uniform. It'll fit me like bits of old elephant skin. It'll fit you well enough. It was very interesting that after the letters started arriving with Harry's updated and very specific living areas, the Dursleys suspected that they were being watched and gave Harry Dudley's second room. Besides the understandable discomfort someone would feel if they were being watched, it appears to me that they only did this because they could see that their treatment of Harry was bad and they didn't want to appear cruel. What can be said about those who do something they know is wrong regardless of that knowledge? And what is the function of paranoia? It seems that the Dursleys have treated Harry as a servant in a way for most of the time that he's lived with them for the past 10 years at this point. I think that in a lot of ways they have learned to see him as someone different from them. And as they perhaps are starting to recognize from the fact that the letters are being addressed to Harry's cupboard, they haven't treated Harry the same way that they are treating Dudley. They've put him in the cupboard instead of giving him a proper bedroom, for example. This phenomenon of trying to perhaps make some kind of excuses to oneself about acting immorally is called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance occurs when we do something that we know to be immoral and because there is a dissonance between our moral code and our actions, we might create some kind of an adjustment in our beliefs to make our actions seem okay. So I think for the Dursleys, the cognitive dissonance that they had was the realization that they treated Harry unfairly but they might have justified it by suggesting that Dudley needed his second bedroom and Harry needed to be in the cupboard. However, now that they know they're being watched and that they know that Harry's whereabouts are known to Hogwarts, Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia decide to act more appropriately by giving him Dudley's second bedroom. So sometimes this is called the observation effect. Some people call it the Hawthorne effect. This means that when we know we're being observed, we might act more morally than we would otherwise. And so I think that Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia perhaps are conscientious and nervous about the way that they come across. We certainly see this when it comes to their neighbors. They never want to stand out. They never want to be seen as different. They don't want their neighbors to judge them. So they might act more appropriately toward Harry in front of the neighbors than they would behind closed doors. And in fact, a lot of family members who are abusive might do the exact same thing that in front of neighbors or strangers, they might act very kindly toward their children or other members of their family. But behind closed doors, they might be a completely different person. What I also want to explore here is the Dursley's, specifically Vernon's, paranoia. That's it! We're going away! Far away! Where they can't find us! Dolly's gone mad, hasn't he? He goes off the deep end a little bit. Rightfully so. I think I would freak out too if Big Brother was looking at me the way that he is. But I mean, he gets pretty paranoid and I just kind of wanted to understand the psychology of paranoia. Well, whether it's paranoia, you know, in the clinical sense, or whether it's a fear, it seems that Vernon was feeling threatened about the fact that 
he and his family couldn't get away from the letters and that no matter where they traveled, the letters followed them. So I think he was nervous about being watched. And I think he was also terrified about coming in contact with magical folk. I don't know for sure, but I get the idea that Vernon probably has never met a magical person. I don't know if he's ever met Lily and James. I would imagine not. So I imagine that from the stories that Petunia had told him about her sister and her husband, Vernon might have developed his own understanding of the magical world and probably believes that they're dangerous. That once again, the other, the different right kind of person is dangerous and is the kind of person that should be kept away from. Whether you call it paranoia or whether you call it some kind of a fear, Vernon, through not understanding what a magical community is, becomes so afraid of it. Because I think we tend to be most afraid of what we don't know, most afraid of what we don't understand. Now, over the years, although the Dursleys despise the magical community, they seem to be a little bit less afraid of it over time. You know, over the first couple of years, they're still nervous, especially when they think Harry is allowed to do magic at home. But over time, they become not necessarily comfortable with it, but they seem to be, although resentful, less frightened of it. And I think that it really shows the more we don't understand something, the more we might fear it. And the more we might get to know somebody who might be different from us, the more we might understand them and the less fear we might have toward that person. Another interesting aspect of this is the idea of repressing something that is just innate in someone. After the letters keep finding their way into the house, regardless of what Uncle Vernon did to stop it and regardless of where he went, it still finds Harry. What can be said about this chapter's take on the pitfalls of repression in this manner? I think that a lot of families might lack the acceptance and the understanding about their children's or their nephews or their family members' differences, whether it's somebody's gender identity or sexual orientation or somebody's career choice or somebody's artistic skills or somebody's non-neurotypical status. I think that some families might be trying so hard to put their family member into a box that they might think that they can repress that part of that person's identity or physiology if they just abuse them enough or pressure them enough or yell at them enough. But as we can see, it doesn't matter where people move to, where they go. An individual cannot hide from who they are. They cannot hide from their identity. And in Harry's case, he's a wizard. And it doesn't matter if they're in their home or if they go to a hotel or swim across the river to some dank, you know, little place in the middle of nowhere. Harry is still a wizard and his wizarding identity will come to find him no matter what which his identity comes bursting at the stroke of midnight on his 11th birthday, which we will be discussing on the next episode of our podcast. 
So again, we want to thank you magical listeners out there for joining us. My name is Dustin McGinnis, and you can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter under at Shadow Quill. And if you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast, Harry Potter Therapy, please feel free to like it, subscribe, and tell your friends. Thank you so much, and have a great day.